term rules-based order, which you're going to find on a lot of kind of like publications and speeches and so on on the alliance, just is, is a term that hasn't resonated in, in our view amongst the population. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Rory Medcalf, the head of the National Security College here at the Australian National University. I'd like to acknowledge that we're recording on the land of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Today, I'm joined by the authors of a really important new report looking at Australian views on the alliance with the United States. This is a hot topic, of course, uh, increasingly pointed in the current strategic environment where we're looking at contestation across the Indo-Pacific, the impact of Chinese power, uh, the AUKUS arrangement, which of course um, has the the promise of bringing Australia nuclear-powered submarines uh, in all probability uh, with a very strong American technology hand in that, and so many other questions about Australia's strategic future. So, it's hugely timely that my guests today uh, and their colleagues have embarked on this project. Let me introduce now uh, Caitlin Byrne, Professor Caitlin Byrne. Uh, Caitlin is the Pro Vice Chancellor of the Griffith uh, University Business School, but of course worked on this project in her previous capacity as Director of the Griffith Asia Institute. And uh, my ANU colleague, Professor Stefan uh, Fruling. Uh, Stefan is at the Strategic Defence Studies Centre here at the Australian National University. Welcome to you both to the National Security Podcast. Thanks so much, Rory. Thank you. Now, this was a really ambitious project, I think a really Im- impressive project, project because you've looked in a qualitative sense, at what Australians think about the alliance with the United States. And, of course, that has a very significant uh, framing purpose for government and and for policy. And what surprises me at one level is how little qualitative work like this has been done in the past. There are all sorts of great surveys that are conducted, opinion polls, the Lowy Institute, the US Studies Centre, ANU itself. But this adds um, a real qualitative edge to that. And I note that the publication, the report that you put out at the end of last year was a collaboration involving uh, the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney, uh, the Australian National University and the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre and the Griffith Asia Institute and uh, your other co-authors in that project, uh, Andrew O'Neill and Peter Dean, can't be with us today. But I want to begin by asking maybe to you first, Caitlin, why did you do this? Well, thanks, Rory, and great to be here to be able to talk with you about the project. Look, I think we embarked on this project at a different time, admittedly. Um, You know, Trump was the US president at the time. I think it was a pre-COVID conversation that we had had, but we we did want to, I think we were very cognizant of the fact that there had been this quantitative research around Australian support or otherwise of the alliance. Uh, or uh, various relationships in international relations, and in particular wanting to drill into that to understand a little bit more of what were the motivations, what were the drivers, what were people really thinking that that 
kind of sat under these numbers. And I think um, Stefan might talk a little bit more to the numbers that, that have come forward from some of those polls. So, Stefan, what's your rationale? Or, or more than that, what, what's the logic of this? Well, I think, I think there are some assumptions that certainly during the time of President Trump, but I think in general, um, assumptions about public opinion um, that do influence Australian policy. For example, in, um, the question about is the Australian public ready for, for bases um, in, or US bases in Australia? What is the Australian view, public view on closer integration? I mean, obviously, the, the big demonstrations against Pine Gap in the 1980s kind of like still float around as something that 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 I think induces a certain sense of caution or at least a sense that public opinion needs to be managed on these kinds of um, questions of the alliance. And we wanted to kind of like test, is that actually still the case? And and I think that in the in the polling, as, as Caitlin said, there are some oddities that we, we sought to drill down in. So, for example, if you look at the last year's Lowy poll, um, there's 87% of proponents believe that the alliance is very or fairly important for Australian security. But at the same time, 77% of those same respondents in the same poll agreed with the statement that, quote, Australia's alliance with the US makes it more likely Australia will be drawn into war in Asia than would not be, than, than that would not be in Australia's interests. So it, on, that's a kind of like an odd juxtaposition. Um, in particular, as you see the, the support for the alliance increasing in parallel with concern that the alliance will draw us into conflict. Um, there's also some other kind of like things that hint at, 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 at more going on in the public, um, 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 opinion in these sense in the, in this regard than can easily be captured. Um, for example, in, in support for American forces being based in Australia being much less significant than support for the alliance in general. So what we were trying to do is kind of like drill down and find out more what explains actually these differences and, and what actually is the basis on which the Australian population kind of forms its views on the alliance. So this is really intended as a, a long-term contribution to understanding how Australians think. And I noted that um, your project, of course, was uh, funded uh, through a strategic policy grant from the Australian Department of Defence. Uh, it would be interesting to maybe hear a few of your your key conclusions, and let's just put aside for a moment the question of methodology. I do want to, you know, in a slightly wonkish way, get back to that a bit later on. How did how did you reach these conclusions? How confident are you uh, that what you've got is a representative view of what I guess thinking Australians think about the alliance? But let's assume you've got all that right. Let's go to a few of the big findings, the big conclusions you've reached. Uh, Caitlin, what stood out for you? I think first and foremost, um, Rory, the thing that really stood out was, and this goes to Stefan's point, when we think about the alliance, you know, often we think about those that are for it and those that are against it. And I think we really were able to dig out the fact that that's not, that there is more complexity in that picture. Um, we really identified four categories, those, you know, the full supporters, those who favour close integration of Australian and US defence efforts, the reserved supporter component, those who see benefits, but also have some reservations about um, a number of factors around the alliance, including the level of autonomy that Australia might have or independence that Australia can exercise um, from the US within the, the scope of that alliance. And then we have the, the sceptics, again, who, who just are not convinced about the benefits 
um, particularly for Australian security and do want to see some changes. And finally, um, a, a, a fairly small group but but a, a very clear group of opponents who actually see the alliance as being detrimental to Australia's interests. Overall, in, an, in net positive terms, support for the alliance was very clear and, and that really aligns with what we've seen through the polling data over decades, you know, in some respects. Kim Beasley talks about there always being that 30% um, who, who are in who are opposed to the alliance. Um, so I think that was a really important aspect for us. But what I think we were able to then dig into was this idea of, of the incomplete project that is the alliance today, and that, of course, is the title of the report. And I might just start off, you know, a couple of, of, of elements of that and hand over to Stefan as well. But really, I think... You know, it's just this a, a, a sense that there's not a complete understanding of what the alliance is for, um, what it does for Australia, and what it's against as well. So, really, a sense of of wanting more. Um, there are these complex attitudes that are held by Australians that seem to be at odds with each other, and Stefan's already mentioned that. So, a sense that we really need to think think more closely about that. Um, so, so that sense of uncertainty, what is it for today as distinct from what is it against? And we often see that negative framing. Um, I'd also say that that for many Australians, and this fit really nicely with me in my previous role and, and ongoing, that for so many Australians, they hold concerns that the Alliance actually draws us away from engaging more fully in our own region. And they want to see a priority. Those that we talk to really saw the need to put priority on our own region. Um, and had concerns about the degree to which the alliance helped or hindered um, that. Stefan, there are a couple from me. I might hand over to you. Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly agree. Yeah, I certainly agree with those. I mean, and there were a few things that we just didn't expect. I think the regional aspect was one, um, largely because the region was mentioned by supporters and opponents alike. And in many ways, the supporters kind of like frame of the alliance or people who were very supportive of closer integration of the alliance were of the view that close engagement with our own region is actually something that we can bring to the alliance and where we've been under delivering and opponents of the alliance often kind of like said that the alliance distracts us from that but but so regardless of where you say it and the reasons are different but the unifying theme was um, um concern about us not doing enough in our immediate region and i guess we need to acknowledge here that the, the most of the research was done in 2022. So there was obviously discussions about kind of like Chinese engagement in the South Pacific and so on that, that kind of colored that. But nonetheless, it's interesting that there was a kind of like a, a point that people agree, regardless of where they sit on that spectrum of support or, or, or I don't want to say op or opposition or skepticism about the alliance. And there were a few other things like that that came through. Um, one is, for example, a, a fairly transactional view of the alliance. I mean, it's very. It, there were very few people who kind of framed the alliance in terms of values. Even those who were very f in favor of much closer integration with the U.S., who saw us as a need to kind of transform the alliance into 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 a much more close relationship, tend to frame their arguments about the alliance in terms of what we get from the alliance. Um, um, likewise, obviously, um, opponents can like have a, have a different view on the cost benefit calculation, but like Australia getting something from the alliance rather than the alliance being an expression of identity or of a broader sense of community or so is a, 
um, um, was a common way in which people framed um, their thoughts about the alliance, um, which I think we didn't quite expect in the same way. And then another two points. I mean, one concern about sovereignty. Um, again, something that we were looking for, but we thought that sovereignty, I think on the outset, sovereignty would be something that would influence that that question, are people opposed to the alliance or, or in favor? Um, and if you like, maybe maybe our own views were a bit colored by the 1980s in that regard. Um, but what we really found is that sovereignty was, or concerns about sovereignty, and by that we mean kind of like Australia's ability to manage the alliance were like, again, across the whole spectrum, even people who were really supportive and saw the need for much closer um, 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 integration in the alliance for, in, in many ways, a transformation of the alliance, often kind of like conditioned that by concerns and questions about are we actually ready? Are we able to manage the new trade-offs and, and, and pressures that that will bring? Um, so I think sovereignty is not is less, and that's one of our conclusions, that sovereignty is not actually a concern about the alliance as such, but more a concern about Australia's ability to manage the alliance and the the, the, the choices or the constraints that closer integration will bring. And then a final one, I mean, again, something that cut across all the this the spectrum of, of opponents or opponents, um, the question about what actually should be the objectives of the alliance. And I think that that's where um, um, some people kind of like saw the alliance in clearly just military terms, but many people saw the alliance obviously as one aspect of closer um, um, cooperation with the US and, and um, a sense that is the alliance actually delivering on all the challenges that is facing Australia and Australian security, in particular climate change? And I think that, again, um, there were some who saw the alliance in the military, in a sense, as a distraction from climate change um, or, or combating climate change. But there were also a lot of people who said, well, we have this very close relationship with the US. Why do we not use this mm. um, um, for climate change mitigation in our region? So, again, a question of what actually is the alliance for and um, being a lot more like rich, a rich, much more richer debate, I think, in the public um, than we often can like give it credit for in, in the policy debates. Mm. Can I just pick up on that point uh, on a couple of those? Because I think that they're conversations that we've seen um, unfold even before this study in some of the previous work we've been involved in with young professionals thinking about the broader world, international relations and in and including the alliance, where we've seen this real uh, concern from young people that the alliance is something that that is outdated. It's may, it's for a different time. It's framed in very narrow security terms and doesn't actually address the things that they see as the the, the primary issues that they're facing. Climate is a really good example, um, but also there was a sense in terms of that incompleteness. I think a sense that. In many respects, so much of, of their experience of the, of the America-Australia relationship is framed in this really narrow defence um, language and that there's so much more to, to the relationship broadly um, that, that we, we, we don't tend to engage in, we don't tend to, to, to maximise the opportunities. So slightly different things there, but, but, but how we frame the alliance within a much broader relationship I think is an issue. And, and just to also pick up on the idea of shared values, you know, the alliance is often framed politically through this lens of shared values, 
um, that are unshakable, unbreakable, that bind the nations together. Now, that that language, um, it, it appeared to us, just doesn't particularly resonate. It, 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 in particular, when you start to drill into the kinds of national debates that are being held in in or that, that were going on in the US at the time, things around abortion, gun control, um, election security, the fact that we'd seen the storming of the Capitol, you know, a year ago, just, just over a year ago. So I think there was a sense that the values story, you know, whilst we don't want to lose that, we don't want to lose that kind of connection with values, that that, that, that that interest base was um, something people really wanted to come back to and understand. There's so much there. And I think that um, I guess one thing that strikes me that we might come back to a bit later on is actually how Australia is currently doing, how the Albanese government is doing, because to be fair, if you read the, um, for example, the the Osmin communiques, probably not um, bedtime reading for uh, even most of your um, project respondents, I, I suspect. These days, there's actually a lot more depth and texture in those and breadth. You know, there is climate. Uh, there, there, mm. There's issues to do with, um, you know, development, women's empowerment, uh, gender. There's a whole lot of issues that you would not have imagined to be alliance issues some years ago. So, whether your project is either ahead of the curve or whether your um, your respondents are tracking trends that that government is thankfully responding to, I don't know. Uh, let's come back to that towards the end. I do want to ask you to think a little bit about a um, a report card of how reality is matching what your um, project respondents are looking for. But let's go before then actually to the recommendations, because I think one of the exciting things about this project is that you haven't just um, admired the problem, as um, as our foreign minister likes to say, but you've actually come up with some actionable ideas that build on the insights your uh, survey participants brought to you to say to the Australian government, let's do things differently. Um, so, Caitlin, first to you and then back to uh, Stefan, what, what, what's with the recommendations? Well, we did, as you say, we didn't just want to spend our time admiring the problem. We did actually want to offer some ideas to policymakers and, and uh, you know, you might have mentioned at the beginning this project was was funded through the uh, Department of Defence Strategic Grants Program, Strategic Policy Grants Program. So there's an interest from policymakers, I think, in in getting some some value out of these kinds of um, research projects. And we wanted to be able to to offer a couple of recommendations that policymakers in particular could take forward. So we identified, I think we have five recommendations in the report, six actually, um, that really reflect those issues that came through. The first being being a reflection of how we're framing the alliance, that we actually, there's a bit of a communications project here to really think through and to frame in much more clear terms what the alliance is for, what's the aspiration, where is it taking us and why does it matter, Um, not just framing it in these very negative terms of what the alliance is against. So I think, and, and no doubt Stefan will come back on a couple of these, so I'll just go through quickly. The, the second recommendation was really to think through, and perhaps we were ahead of the curve, Rory, I'd love to think that that was the case, to think through, you know, again, returning to this idea that the Alliance in its current form represents an incomplete project, 
how do we actually activate a, a broader-based kind of alliance? How do we think about that broader partnership? Um, and there are a number of ways that we might be able to think about that, you know, dealing with non-traditional security threats, climate, um, thinking about SDGs and advancing SDGs, looking to business and the opportunities for two-way engagement around trade, um, business investment. The third recommendation really sat around that emphasising sovereignty within the alliance, addressing the concerns that, that Stefan has mentioned around what capacity does Australia have or does, do Australian policymakers have to really leverage and manage the alliance proactively in a way that, that advances Australia's interests how about I leave it there because I feel like I'm getting sick of my own voice but the, and hand over to Stefan for the last three. That sort of sets the tone though, Rory. Yeah, no, the, the, and, and they're all very, very substantial. Uh, what, else, uh, what else is there in the you know, understanding the recommendations, Stefan? Yeah, no, I mean, um, I, I think, I mean, the, the first recommendation that Caitlin already mentioned in terms of defining what it is for and, and, and not just what it is against, I think that's a very rich one insofar as um, it really is a lot about communication. I think there was a sense, and that's probably cutting across all our recommendations here, that, that we need to address what we found in the research, that Australians seem have feel that they have a much better understanding of what the alliance historically was than what it is now for. And I think that when people come back to like 1942 and, and the threat of Japanese invasion, it's kind of like they understand that Kind of like there was a clear rationale from the alliance there. They understand a clear rationale for the alliance in fighting the Cold War. But um, there's a sense of, well, there's a new era now. What is that new era for the alliance? Um, and, and that they haven't heard much from the government about that. And I think that it's kind of telling that if you think about most of the major speeches that those who follow this on a, on a more regular basis kind of like often come back to, they tend to be in Washington now, even of Australian politicians. I mean, Gillard speak to Cong speaks to Congress, even Richard Miles' recent speech at CSIS, um, it, it seems like Australian politicians of recent years have, 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 have been articulating Australia's rationale for the alliance to Americans much more than to, to Australians, at least in terms of um, um, those being considered the major speeches on, on the subject. So I think if you can I take that as an overarching theme, um, and a few of the other points that, or the other recommendations that we focused on is this issue of maintaining a focus on Australia's immediate region that in many ways there is I mean that is a way I think of addressing some of the concerns that people have about the alliance as being a distraction from what they see of Australia's core core in core like priorities but it is also something that I think can can um, like is it, um, um, ad address address kind of like where there's a consensus um, across the spectrum of those more favorably and, and more skeptical about the alliance. Um, and I think that, again, whether that mean, really means changing policy, I'm not so sure, but certainly articulating that link um, of on Australia, articulating Australia's ability to, to walk and chew gum, I guess, as the Americans would say, of, of having a closer alliance as well as in um, um, working more closely with our region and how the alliance is actually to some extent enabling us to be more effective in the region and how our engagement in the region is a major contribution to the alliance. I think that is an important message to that that pr probably um, hasn't been articulated as clearly as possible. 
Um, and, and then finally, en- enabling a deeper consultation, I think, am- amongst Australian on the alliance. And I think that when you, you can go back to the Hawke government, I guess, and some of their views on, on, on en- how to engage the public and policymaking. And well, and finally, coming back to this, to the, our recommendation is to enable a deeper consultation amongst Australians on the alliance. I think that there is a sense uh, that Australians are interested in in foreign policy and defense policy in the future of the alliance um, but i think there is a sense that they haven't they don't a lot of people don't feel like the the governments of past governments have engaged them on 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 articulating what policy and and and, and what australia's interests are in this in this in this regard and i think a sense that the the, the public is ready for a more richer and substantive engagement an explanation and, and discussion on these issues than maybe um, 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 governments in recent years have been have been um, comfortable with or have been embarking on. If I can pick up on that last point, if that's all right, sorry, just um, you know, one of the things we were all quite quite struck by was that quote from Peter Shergold around the fact that good policy should harness the views of those likely to be impacted by it. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to, you know, collect the views of the nation and they will they will immediately shape or um, provide approval for a particular course or, or direction. But it is important to have, I think we were really struck that the need to have more meaningful discussions, more meaningful conversations, um, is really ripe in this area and and not only in this area actually I think we're seeing it across a much broader spectrum of policy issues in in the nation today anyway but that it is worthwhile it it can offer that richness that I think Stefan has talked to for the policy making process so um in, in some respects this this is a little bit of almost domestic public diplomacy, how do we engage and involve and consider the views of Australians as we think about big policy issues going forward? And I think that, I mean, I think this issue of being, considering this a bit of public diplomacy, I think is a, is a useful analogy um, because ultimately, in order to be effective, we actually need to speak to the, the, the audience, if you like, in a, in a way that, 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 that um, um, Kind of like frame uh, puts arguments in, frames arguments in a way um, that addresses their concerns, and I think that there is a bit of a divorce of the the well, I want to call it elite discourse, but certainly some of the frames, the terms, and and phraseology that has developed around this in policy circles. I mean, for example, the term rules based order, which you're going to find on a lot of kind of like publications and speeches and so on on the alliance, just is is a term that hasn't resonated in, in our view amongst the population. I don't think that. Um, and most of the participants that we we spoke to just didn't quite know what to make of that term. It's certainly not a term in which they phrased um, their kind of like diagnosis of of, of objectives or, or or problems that the alliance is facing. Another one is is full knowledge and concurrence. I mean, I'll, ironically, a term that kind of came out of a, a policy responding to, to 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 concerns in the population about about sovereignty back in the 1980s. But full knowledge and concurrence, although it was subject of, I mean, the the the, the topic of a, a, a statement on the alliance to parliament back in the um, and, uh, by Stephen Smith, again, full knowledge and concurrence is not a term that resonates with the public. Um, um, so, f- using these kinds of phraseology that is has, even if it is very ingrained in the policy discourse on the alliance, I don't think is a useful way of engaging the broader population. 
on on these these issues and that certainly is one of the takeaways um, from the project for me we'll be right back millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. There's a huge emphasis on communication here, and I guess if I were a policymaker, uh, studying this report, and I hope and I imagine that senior policymakers in both governments have been doing that. Now, I would like to think that there's a uh, a very substantial cable from the uh, the U.S. Embassy that went back once your report was published. But if if policymakers are studying this, I get the sense that one degree of comfort that they can take from it is that having a more robust public conversation about the alliance will actually be good for the alliance rather than risk undoing all sorts of arrangements that have been developed um, in the you know in, in the realm of diplomacy over the years is, is that your sense I would say yes Rory and one of the things for those that do have a, a copy of the report or find it online if you know page 15 we've, we've we talked through what are the words that come to mind and we've visually represented the kind of narratives that come forward from those four different groups. And that I think is really fascinating and it gives policymakers a lot of scope to kind of dig into what are the narratives, what are the tropes that uh, are currently framing the communication of the alliance and where are their opportunities to draw out some more of that complexity, to engage in that discussion. And I think, you know, as I alluded to previously, we do have to get better at that broader civil discourse and around policy. And this is an area that, that in my view, would benefit from that, um, not least just in terms of improving understanding of what the Alliance is about, where it's taking us, why we're engaged in it, and how we can improve, you know, improve that, the, the policies underpinning it over time. So I want to get to the methodology in a moment, and then I want to wrap up just with a few thoughts on where uh, the Australian government's likely to go from here with the alliance. I do want to just throw one or two pointed questions at you first about, um, I guess, counter arguments to, frankly, the um, the whole the whole rationale of your of your project. I mean, on the one hand, you um, you talk about the the need to embed the alliance in a clearer sense of Australian identity or a clearer sense of Australian independence or, you know, the, the way the community might feel about things. I don't know, and I could well be wrong here, but in the story of alliance building 
in our region or globally over the last hundred years or so, that's surely not um, not a standard thing to do. That's that's a pretty high bar you've set, isn't it? I mean, is is there a, a national identity issue embedded in the US Japan alliance, or you know, do, do NATO countries have conversations like this? Please, please challenge and, and educate, uh, Stefan. You first. Well, I think I think it's a I think it's a good question. Um, I don't. I'm not sure that. I'm not aware, we, we've done a bit of digging, but we're not really aware of similar research being conducted in many other countries. Um, but I do think that even in the with way that insofar as a lot of this is about how does government or how effective is the po- policy community at large in, 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 in like explaining its arguments and debates about the alliance um, to the broader public. In that sense, it is a communications issue. And the question is, how do you frame this? And I think that Things like a hundred years of mateship, for example, which has been very effective and, and I think has been creeping into some of the you know, like um, uh, way that that's um, um, Australian governments have talked about the alliance. Um, I think it's a legitimate question to ask: Is that really a good way to kind of like engage the Australian public on this? And I think that um, there, our research has shown that, in our view, it is not really um, that. That, as we said, our the the, the the, the public tends to, or most of the people that we talk to, like um, tend to frame their arguments, their views of the alliance in that more transactional view. And I think that that is, I mean, um, it's probably, I don't want to speak too much for other alliances, but I think that there's probably nuance here that that probably Australia is a bit different from from, from other alliances. I think that there, there um, um, certainly if you look at the NATO context, for example, I mean, the, the idea of a transatlantic community, for example, is just part and parcel and has been very central to the idea of NATO, for example, and uh, there's just no real equivalent here to the that transatlantic community um, or the Euro-Atlantic area, kind of like as a as a, a, a not just a kind of like a, a legal definition in the treaty, but actually a political unity, and and uh, uh, um, that just doesn't kind of like seem to resonate and doesn't have to have an equivalent here. So I think that um, I don't think one should over kind of like emphasize these things, but it does hint, I think, at at some 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 real differences. Um, I do think that um, they do exist to other alliances, and certainly, I think that they they hint at ways in which it might be more effective at engaging the public in arguments about the alliance um, um, than than some other arguments. Thanks, uh, Caitlin. Are, are we are we over uh, sort of over fixating on this question of uh, of identity and community, or I mean, aren't all alliances pragmatic in the end? Where, where do you sit? Well, yeah, it is. I mean, it's interesting because foreign policy does reflect the values and the identity of a nation. You know, and we hear a number of foreign ministers refer to that kind of connection. So. Given given the the longstanding nature of this alliance, of of the relationship between Australia and the US, and the way that it's been framed in contemporary terms in recent years, um, around the the more contemporary dynamics of our region, I think it's worth doing. I think it is worth having that conversation about our foreign policy is often a reflection of who we are and what we stand for. What does that really mean? So how do we really get under the skin of that? So in this sense, I think, um, no, I would argue it's not overthinking it. You know, we it's, it's valuable to have these conversations to understand the kind of texture that our foreign policy reflects um, of our domestic landscape. 
And I guess just for the record, I've always been myself a bit of a sceptic of the 100 years of, of mateship thing. I suspect that's aimed much more at American sentiment than it is at um, Australian sentiment, I think. Observers well, uh, absolutely. What, what, what we say is not always what we think, uh, at least not, um, yeah. not what a good policymaker or political leader uh, does anyway. But let's um, begin to wrap up here. I just want one or two thoughts from you on the methodology and um, explaining just a little bit how, how this was done uh, because it's not, uh, it's not an opinion poll and it's not, if you like, standard focus groups where uh, people are, are paid to um, express their views. Uh, Caitlin, how did you do it? Well, we really did a, a very massive communications campaign to alert people to the fact that we were doing this research and, and draw as many participants across the country, um, both in regional and in, in urban and regional centres, um, in every state and territory to the fore. Bearing in mind, unfortunately, we were interrupted by various lockdowns. And so while much of this initially was going to be face-to-face, -face, a lot of it happened online. Um, so we were asking people to be involved. This is really a reflection of those people who heard about the, the study and we, we utilised every method of communication possible, um, contacting, you know, more than a thousand peak bodies as well as various organisations to to bring people together. Um, so that was really our focus and we went through a process of, of roundtable discussions both online and in person, walking through some of the questions that are all available in the report and we followed that up with a survey. So really capturing um, the views of, of our participants to, to to refine and hone some of the, the concepts that they had discussed with us in the roundtables. And then what did you do with the survey? Well, this is where I'm going to hand over to Stefan Please. because we yeah. had all sorts of, of an analysis in the background. Yeah, no, um, so, so I think that just to pick up on what Caitlin just said, I mean, I think it's important to read this report in, in light of its methodology. As you said, it's not... We didn't provide financial inducements to kind of like have random like um, 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 people from the street, if you like, um, give us their views on focus groups. And part, and this was, was actually deliberate because, as we mentioned in the beginning, one of the reasons for this uh, conducting this project was this perception that is the Australian public ready for a much closer integration in the alliance? And and in the end, I mean, that's ultimately a question of electoral intent, I guess. Um, and, and so we need to engage with those people who, who actually are sufficiently interested in these questions that it might conceivably influence their votes. Hmm. And I think that that's methodology reflects this intent of engaging with that part of the community that doesn't follow the alliance debates on a regular basis. So we didn't run workshops with the networks of the Lowy Institute or the Strategic Defense Study Center or the NSC or the, the USSC and, and all the usual suspects in these debates. Um, but we went, but, but we, we, we still focused on, or we, we engaged with those people who came forward and are sufficiently interested in the alliance, even though they're not part of the regular debates, um, that, that, um, um, they clearly have an interest in this and as, as a, as something that, that, that forms probably, well, we assume kind of like forms part of their decisions on, on, on ultimately, um, um, elections. And I think so in that sense, it is, I think, a representative sample of, the broader population um, who are sufficiently engaged in these debates um, that that they, it may have kind of electoral and political significance. 
And so it, as part of this, um, it is a quant qualitative study. Um, so um, we, we um, um, the report is based on our in, uh, discussions with these groups and our notes from these discussions. Um, but we've used the survey, which kind of reflected on, uh, uh, repeats the same questions to, to like, well, A, have a, have a corroboration of our impressions from the, from the um, discussions, um, as well as quantif, well, I don't want to say, well, quantify some of those um, um, degrees of skepticism that Caitlin mentioned in the beginning. So the definition of full supporters, um, um, more, more, more reserved supporters who voice kind of concerns about sovereignty, the skeptics and the po opponents, those are things that we have sought to quantify um, as part of, uh, based on the survey responses, um, um, we think that it matches up reasonably well um, with the, the the quantitative data that we have from the Australian Electoral Survey and the Lowy poll, um, noting that it's a different methodology and, and the sample is much 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 smaller. So you don't want to kind of put too much store or on the on the exact figures that are in the report, but noting that it's an important corroboration, I think, of our methodology and results. Um, that the difference that that um, um, those kind of like shares of the population, if you like, um, broadly align. So I guess you, 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 you're confirming here that this is it's a cross section of Australians who want to think about these issues, not necessarily a, a full cross section of society. Um, and I guess uh, you're, you're explaining how this sits with or augments the research that's already been conducted. It, it is it is a pretty impressive body of evidence. Uh, you've reached some pretty strong conclusions about the future of the Australian alliance with the United States and how Australians think about it, and I guess the challenges and opportunities ahead. So I want to conclude just by asking each of you for a thought or two on how are we doing? How is the alliance doing, particularly under the uh, the Albanese government and the Biden administration? Whereas I noted, at least in the um, the communiques that the two governments are putting out, we are seeing a broader um, a broader agenda at work. Uh, while at the same time, in the background, some very deep and sensitive defence cooperation is is, is going on. Um, I'll start with you, Stefan. No, I think I think that's an excellent question, and I think that. I mean, ultimately, I came away from this research quite encouraged and relieved in the sense that I actually think that the population is ready for a conversation about a, a new era in the alliance. Um, clearly, I mean, there is a sense the population knows that the, the era of the, the wars in the Middle East is over. Um, um, and, and I think that uh, some of the concerns about the Australian public, like being somehow inherently opposed to to conversations about what sovereign or, or sovereignty and, and the need for closer integration in the alliance that kind of like was covered by colored, I think, by these impressions from the 1980s. I think that that actually hasn't borne out. So I think that um, as a, as a policy, broader policy community who are discussing ways and benefits of, of closer integration with the alliance, I think that this, this research has demonstrated that there's nothing inherent in Australians' views on this that would make that impossible. Um, but that that ultimately this is a question of engaging the public and explaining what's happening, explaining the changes that are happening. And I think that that's where um, um, I still have some concerns. Um, I think that the, the certainly the recent government and and but to to be fair, also even the the Morrison government with the Pacific Step Up, we're actually starting to um, implement or walk along the path that 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 I think is quite consistent with our findings in this broader conversation. 
about objectives in the alliance, in the focus on the region and linking our engagement in the region with the alliance. Um, but I think that what we still have yet to see is a really concerted effort and prominent effort by the government to speak to the Australian public on a future vision of the alliance. As I said, I mean, even Richard, Ma I mean, there's more speeches overseas on this, both by Penny Wong and um, by Richard Miles um, than there have been in Australia. And I think that, that there is still an unfinished kind of like project there, as we call it, um, um, to actually engage the population and, and Australians in a, in a view on, in an articulation of what will the alliance be and what, what do the, what does the government want the alliance to be for the next few, well, probably decades, um, as part of Australia's overall policy and position in the region? Caitlin. If I can just add a couple of things there, Rory, you know, I think I would agree with Stefan. I think um, we have seen a, a, a shift, slight shift in the, the political rhetoric, the statement coming out of last year's Osmin does kind of point to that broadening of, um, of the discussions between Australia and the US, not just on defence and, you know, traditional defence and security, but to galvanise collective action in addressing climate, the climate crisis, um, to really protect and promote human rights, to, to look at gender equity and equality, um, to think about technology, to look at issues that are really worrying for businesses at the moment around supply chains, critical supply chains. And, and also putting Asia at the centre of so much of, of that effort and work, I think we have a little way to go before we start to see the conversation unfold with an Australian public in a way that is is actually that, that engages um, outside the, the usual circles, which when it comes to the Australia-US relationship can be, can be fairly elite and, and small. Um, I think there's a lot more work to do there for Australians also to understand the US today, um, you know, having come out of a Trump presidency into the Biden administration, who knows what will come next. But I think to really generate that kind of understanding um, between the two countries, we've got a little way to go. We've got a new ambassador heading over to the US uh, we, and that might help to to do some of that as well. So um, still an incomplete project and much more work to be done. There are so many, uh, if you like, moments or opportunities in the year ahead where I think your findings could be useful. I'm thinking, of course, that there'll be the um, Defence uh, Strategic Review uh, release relatively soon, the uh, the submarine pathway, as it's called, for AUKUS, uh, the Quad Summit in Australia later this year, and, as you note, some new appointments, including a new ambassador to the, to the United States. So uh, I hope and believe that your research will inform policy. Uh, you called your work uh, an incomplete project, but I'm glad uh, that it's it's very much... Uh, finished uh, for the moment uh, as a piece of research, and I commend it to our listeners. So thank you again to Professor Caitlin uh, Byrne from Griffith University and also to Professor Stefan Furling from the ANU and to your co-authors for this project and for joining us on the uh, National Security Podcast. A pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. 
Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.